Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I love these brothers and sisters and count it a joy and an honor to be among them as part of the family of God, to be brothers and sisters with them. And you love them more. I desire for us to hear your word. You desire it more. I desire that we would hear and not only hear, but do what it says. You desire it more. And you have your power, your spirit, and your word, which is living and active, which is able to do what man cannot do. When you say, let there be things that are not become, so we ask, O oh Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, it would cause things to happen, life to come, faith to emerge, obedience to result. We ask and pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me tell you about the first football game I ever went to. And it wasn't here at Lincoln Financial Field. It was actually while we were still in Boston. Uh, Shino and I got tickets to see the New England Patriots play that night against the Indianapolis Colts. This was back in the day when Peyton Manning was the quarterback and Marvin Harrison was a receiver, if those names mean anything to you. Now, this was before I moved to Philly, before your people became my people and your eagles became my eagles. It was long before that, but even back then, what I had in common with you was a shared hatred for the Patriots, right? I knew that Bill Belichick, the coach, was this evil genius. I knew that Tom Brady was so handsome I wanted to throw up. I knew that I hated the Patriots. And so I told Shinu that night, we're going to the game. Tonight, we are Colts fans. And I remember that night. I, I remember forever because Shinu has no interest whatsoever in football ever until we got to the game. And all of a sudden, at the game, she's going, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's a first down? Why is he hitting him so hard? And I want to be like, woman, I watch this game every week, and now you want to learn the game while we're here. I'm, I'm kidding because genuinely she came out of love for me, and I was so grateful for all that Shainu did not know. The one thing she did know and understood very well was we were rooting for the Colts. And so naturally, when the Colts scored, Shainu naturally cheered. And that's when I had to explain to her, sweetheart, sweetheart, listen, no, no, we're Colts fans, but we're secret Colts fans, right? I mean, think about it. We were in the middle of Foxborough Stadium in Massachusetts, drowning in an ocean of Tom Brady jerseys, right? And I had sitting there with 65,000 Patriots fans. There was no way I was going public with our allegiance to the Colts, right? That was not worth it. And so I had already heard what the Pats fans said to the Colts fans who dared to wear a Colts jersey to the, to the stadium. I had heard what came out of their mouth. I, I'm not sure if everyone in the stadium went to Harvard, but it was the most eloquent swearing I had ever heard, right? Like this Shakespearean profanity came out of their mouth. And the last thing that I wanted was for that stadium to turn on us. So here's what we did. We kept our allegiance to the Colts hidden to ourselves, right? So every now and then... When the Colts would score, we'd have these quiet glances at each other, these hidden smiles, these secret high fives when no one was looking. I would say the best way to describe it is my rooting for the Colts was personal and private and quietly contained within the safe confines of my heart. And when the Colts won that night, and they did, I evacuated that awful stadium on the winning side. 
I think the Holy Spirit of God has used this passage we're looking at today to both confront and challenge me by exposing to me that I tend to treat my allegiance to Jesus the way I was a Colts fan that night. I think that so often I am guilty of a faith in Jesus that by and large is private and personal and quietly and safely contained within the safe confines of my heart. A very calculated allegiance to Jesus that only peaks its head above the surface when it is absolutely safe to do so that seeks desperately to blend in, rarely ever wants to stand apart or stand out, that rarely goes public and rarely disturbs the status quo. An affiliation with Jesus that goes largely unknown and unseen and unnoticed, that doesn't stir the pot or cause waves, a Christian existence, if you will, that is just waiting to be evacuated out of this awful world on the winning side, and the hell with everyone else. Literally, no. The hell with everyone else. And then that version of following Jesus collides with what following Jesus looks like in the pages of Acts, and juxtaposed one next to the other, the two side by side, it immediately becomes apparent that these two don't mesh. That one is not like the other. Because what you see in the pages of Acts, in the unfolding story of the first days of the Christian movement, of the Jesus movement, is that faith in Jesus is certainly personal, but it is far from private. That an allegiance to Jesus is certainly rooted in the heart, but it cannot possibly be quietly or secretly or safely contained there. It's not pushy, it's not obnoxious, it's not rude, it's not a conquering, triumphant one, but nevertheless, it is also a faith in acts in Jesus Christ doesn't seem to invisibly exist, waiting to be one day evacuated out of this earth and safely brought to heaven. But rather, the faith in acts seems to constantly push towards seeing God's kingdom that is his rule and reign, come to this earth, and as Jesus taught us to pray, his will be done here as it is there. The faith in Acts seems determined to see that his kingdom come and his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so instead of being quietly contained within some pious hearts, in Acts, the truth of Jesus seems to detonate in the real world, so much so that people on the outside can't help but see it, can't help but take notice of it, can't help but even say things like we hear in Acts 17, these people are turning the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have showed up in our city as well. That's what I see in Acts 17. And so, for the sake of some clarity so that you can follow along, I've got just two observations from this passage, two points for us today. And that is that the truth of Jesus is contained in the book you have in your laps. The truth of Jesus is contained in this book. That's one. But second, 
the truth of Jesus can't be contained and turns the world upside down. Those are the two things I want us to see from this passage. The truth of Jesus is contained in this book, but also the truth of Jesus can't be contained and turns the world upside down. Here's the first one. The first thing that I think Dr. Luke, remember he's the author of the book of Acts, wants us to think about with this passage is about this book that contains the truth of Jesus. He wants us to think about the Bible. Now why do I say that? I say that because, look down with me, Acts 17. I say that because in the way he's put this passage together, this section together, he's put verses, if you'll look, 1 to 9, followed immediately by 10 to 15, and he draws two stories of two cities. He draws in that story, in putting these two together, he draws what I would say is a contrast between what happens in Thessalonica, one city, and what happens in Berea, another city, and the contrast has to do with this book. How these two cities and the synagogues therein and the people therein, those synagogues, related to this book. So look at 17 with me. 17 begins with Paul and Silas and Timothy, the church planting team that is just planted in Philippi in 16. Now they travel 70 miles southwest and they get to the capital city of that region called Thessalonica. Here's what it says. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now here's what you hear. At the end of 16, they leave Philippi, and Paul and his team travel 70 miles southwest, and they get to Thessalonica, the capital city. And just like we've seen Paul do before, or as Dr. Luke says here, as was his custom, meaning this was his regular practice, he goes into the city and goes for low-hanging fruit first. He goes to the place where they're familiar with the scriptures he wants to preach from. He goes to the synagogue in the city. And there, among a people of the book, among a people who love the Bible, who read the Bible, who believe the Bible, he begins to use this book to proclaim to them Jesus Christ. One commentator, a man named Ajith Fernando, he says, we would do well to pay attention to some of the verbs here. In fact, there's four verbs. Do you see them from verse 2 and following? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving, and then moreover, proclaiming that this Jesus is the Christ. Do you hear the words? He reasoned with them, explained to them, proved to them, proclaimed to them. Can you feel in those verbs Paul laboring to get them in a comprehensive, multifaceted, multi-approached way to get them to see that this book that they read in the synagogue every week is about Jesus? That's what he's trying to do. That over the course of three Saturdays, that's what it says, right? Over the course of three weekends, three Sabbaths, he's looking to show them that this book that you open to every single week in the synagogue, as you read from the history, as you read from the law, as you read from the prophets, as you read from the Psalms, as you read this book, let me give you the reason why. Let me explain to you why. 
Let me prove to you why. Let me proclaim to you why Jesus is the message of this book. Jesus is the Christ. And so through reasoning and explaining and proving and proclaiming, he shows them that this book is about Jesus. What he's essentially doing is, listen, he's helping them connect the dots of a book they already know. So, for example, he would have stood up in that synagogue on week one out of these three-week series, and he would have said to them, listen, the entire what we call Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, what's the hope of the entire book? The hope of the entire book is that one day, Yahweh God will send someone. Who's this someone? We call him the Messiah, the anointed one. The Greek of that is literally Christ. Remember, Jesus' last name is in Christ. That's the title. That's just the Greek way of saying Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. What's the hope of the whole Old Testament? That one day Yahweh is going to send a Messiah, an anointed one, an appointed one. And what's this Messiah going to do? Oh, this Messiah. This Messiah is going to be like a better Moses. He's going to be a deliverer, a rescuer. Just like Moses set the people free from their captivity in Egypt, so this rescuer, this deliverer will set us free from our captivity. Every evil oppressor will be overthrown when the Messiah comes. And oh, this Messiah, this Messiah will be a king, like the best of our kings, like better than David. He will rule and reign, and he will bring Yahweh's kingdom back to the earth. Yahweh ruled and reigned once, but now we're under captivity. But when Messiah comes, Yahweh's rule and reign will be on the earth again, and it won't just be localized to one plot of ground. It won't just be localized to Israel. His rule will spread from sea to sea, the prophet said. The psalm said. His dominion will cover from one end to the other. His glory will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. When Yahweh comes, there will be shalom on the earth again. Peace will be restored. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The kid will stick his hand in the venom's nest and nothing will happen. The, the viper's nest and no harm will come. Everything will be made right. When Yahweh's messenger, his appointed one his anointed one comes week one week two he says but there's another dot you got to connect and that is that while you wait for the appointed one the anointed one the messiah the christ the prophets also say that the awaited one is going to suffer and so maybe week two he opens to isaiah 53 and he says read this and tell me who is the prophet speaking of because the one who is coming the servant of yahweh he will suffer. He, he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. He will be wounded for us. By his stripes we will be healed. And he will be cut off from the land of the living. And he will be laid in the grave of a rich man. So you got to connect the dots. You're waiting for someone. But the, the prophets seem to say that that someone will suffer. And more than suffer, he will die for our sins. Week two. Then he comes back in week three, I imagine, on the Sabbath day. And he says, you're connecting the dots, but now you got one more dot to connect. Because the prophets and the Psalms also spoke. And maybe he opened up to Psalm 16. And he said, David spoke in the Spirit. And he prophesied that God, Yahweh, would not let his Holy One see corruption in the grave. And that his body would not go through corruption. And so whoever this awaited one is that you're waiting for will suffer. But more than that, he won't rot in a grave. 
And now the, he must have said, like Peter did earlier in Acts, who was David speaking about? David couldn't have been speaking about himself because we know as great as King David was where his grave is, and I hate to tell you, but what happens to all bodies in the grave happened to David as well. So who was David speaking of? except a greater king, the one you've been waiting for. And so he's connecting the dots and helping them to see, don't you see the Messiah you've been waiting for is going to suffer, but though he suffers, wounded for our transgressions, and through it will be healed, don't you see that it's always been promised he will not be subject to corruption. He will rise from the dead. He begins to preach, and over the three weeks, he's connecting the dots, and here's what he's saying. He's essentially saying, look, if it, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And if the Messiah is supposed to come, and if the Messiah is supposed to suffer, and if the Messiah is supposed to rise from the dead, and Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, what do you think that means about who Jesus is? And that's why he says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's what's contained in this book. He's saying to them, this Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. This Jesus is the hope of the whole world. This Jesus is the promise of God come fulfilled, that Yahweh is going to rule and reign. This Jesus has broken into the world, and the kingdom of God has broken in with him. And the rule of reign of Yahweh has put down a flag on the earth, and now Yahweh's rule will extend from sea to sea. And his dominion will be known in the earth, and the glory of God will cover the waters like the sea. This is happening. And so he reasons with them, and explains to them, and proves to them, and proclaims to them Jesus. Now, add to those four verbs two more in verse 4, and you'll see the response of some of the people. And note that, some of the people in Thessalonica, because in verse 4 it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. This is the hope of gospel ministry, that after you prove, and after you explain, and after you reason, and after you proclaim, that some will be persuaded and joined, and that's exactly what happens. Some of those sitting in the synagogue that day were persuaded, persuaded by his reasoning and his explanation, and his proving, and his proclamation, that Jesus is in fact the Christ, who suffered and died and rose again. And they, persuaded by it, joined the apostles and this new blossoming Jesus movement. They joined them. And, and do you see who joined them? How Christianity from the first day cuts across all genders, all classes, all ethnicities, there's Greeks and there's Jews. There's men and there's women. There's those of the high class and of no class. There's everyone in this movement. And some are persuaded and joined. But that will not be the response of everyone in Thessalonica. And you know that because as you read five and following, some in the synagogue in Thessalonica could not care less about what he explained or tried to prove or reasoned or proclaimed. It doesn't matter what they saw in this book. The response of some of them, provoked by jealousy, was to rise up a rabble, the low lives of town, cause a mob, 
to go after these apostles, to hunt for them. And that difference, this response of the sum, is precisely where Dr. Luke wants to draw a contrast between the synagogue you find in Thessalonica and the synagogue you find in the next section in Berea. You see that? Don't miss that. 1 to 9, he's showing you the synagogue in Thessalonica. 10 to 15, he's showing you the synagogue in Berea. And, and what you see in the next section is that when Paul and Silas are driven out of town, they go to another city, this one Berea. And guess where they go? Luke would have said, as was his custom, he found another synagogue, this time in Berea. And when he gets there, guess what he does? On the Sabbath day, I can imagine he proves and explains and proclaims and reasons with them about Jesus. So just like in Thessalonica, he goes to a city, just like in Thessalonica, he finds the synagogue, just like in Thessalonica, he opens the scriptures, just like in Thessalonica, he proclaims, reasons, explains, and proves. But here's the difference, verse 10. This is the difference that Luke wants to highlight for us. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into a Jewish synagogue. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You see, Dr. Luke references Thessalonica again, Thessalonica again, because he wants to hold Thessalonica and Berea side by side, juxtapose the two, and seeing them one next to each other, help you see one is not like the other. And why is one not like the other? Particularly in how they respond to this book. He says, now in that city, in Berea, there were Jews more noble than those in Thessalonica. And when Luke says that, we should pay attention. Because Luke doesn't often insert his opinion or commentary into the book. Remember when Paul and Barnabas got into a fight? He never said which side was the right one, which side was the wrong one. He just presented it to you and you took it. Now he's drawing these two cities and he's inserting a comment which is bright lights to us to say, pay attention. He's saying to you, Berea was more noble. He wants Theophilus, the guy he's writing this to, and you who's reading it to know, you should pay attention to Berea. They were more noble. That is to say, you should imitate Berea. You should emulate Berea. You should do as the Bereans did. They were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why were they more noble? Not because of their status, not because of their standing in society, not because of the jobs they had or the education or their class. They were more noble because of what they did with this book. Nobility in the Bible comes by how you respond to this book. The Bible declares you to be noble by how you respond to this book. And verse 11 tells us exactly how did they respond to this book. Three phrases there. Do you see it? They received the word with all eagerness. Now listen, a whole sermon could be preached on just these three phrases for the sake of time. Would you just hear it with me? They received the word with eagerness. You know what the word eagerness means? It's a word that means like rushing to. I don't need to define for you eagerness. You know eagerness. You, you know what eagerness is? Today, as soon as the service is done, watch how the cars will peel out of this driveway right? Because there is a football game going on at 9.30 a.m. that is being DVR'd by 99% of you. And it will seem like you are watching the Fast and the Furious pulling out of the parking lot. Because we get eagerness. 
Could you imagine a people that pulled into the synagogue parking lot that way? That they were rushing to, chomping at the bit, hungry for, we're going to hear God's word. We're going to hear the voice of God proclaimed today. And they were running into that place. They came with an eagerness, not just an eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily. These Bereans, they examined the scriptures daily, meaning Paul spoke to them from this book on the Sabbath day. But then the next day and the day after that and the day after that until all the way to the next Sabbath day, they were back in this book, examining this book. They weren't going to leave this book to the elite on a pulpit on the Sabbath day. They came back for this book. They came to examine. The word there is like a legal word. They came to study it, to dig into it, to look for themselves. And when did they do that? They did it daily. They did it daily. Can I tell you, I remember talking with Matt Cruz, who is the pastor up in Seven Mile Road, Boston. And Matt was just very nonchalantly just talking to me about this brother that he had encountered. They were doing soul care together. This brother wanted to be a pastor. And in the context of soul care, this wonderful, safe place to talk through, he just shared how it had been weeks, days, weeks, since he had read God's word. And can I tell you, Matt responded to that almost stunned, like aghast, like he couldn't believe that someone who loved the Lord and wanted to pursue scriptures and ministry could be away from God's word for that long. And can I tell you, I was stunned that Matt was stunned. Meaning I had come to expect that and, 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 and receive that as just normal, basic American Christianity. We're not going to really read his word. I just came to expect that Christians don't really read God's word every day. And the fact that Matt was stunned by it stunned me. I was so taken aback by why he would be stunned by it. He wasn't condemning about it. He just couldn't imagine not having a regular diet of God's word as someone who belonged to God. And I can't, I so often go back to how was he aghast by that? And how was I aghast that he was aghast? And what does that say about what I expect of these Bereans examined the scriptures. They rushed to it with an eagerness, and they examined it daily. And moreover, the phrase ends, to see if these things were so. Meaning it wasn't enough that a guy behind a pulpit opened the scriptures to them on the Sabbath day. They never listened to a sermon without an open Bible. Because who cares who the guy is here? They had to see is it in here? They couldn't listen to a sermon without a scripture in front of them because they needed to see for themselves, are these things so? Is that not stunning? That for them, it did not matter who was here. We would go, it's the Apostle Paul, for goodness sake. Right, he's the one preaching. And yet for them, here's the truth of Berea, they didn't know Paul from Adam. They didn't care. And so it did not matter who was behind. It mattered was what the guy was saying in here. Isn't that a beautiful posture? That, that the Bereans would have said, listen, it doesn't matter who's standing behind the pulpit. I mean, God has literally in the Old Testament spoken through the mouth of a donkey. We will listen to any donkey as long as it comes from this book, right? It doesn't matter. And so 
It doesn't matter how unimpressive you are, if you're speaking from this book, we'll listen. And it doesn't matter what celebrity you are, if you're not speaking from this book, we won't. I remember hearing, let me just tell you one thing. I remember hearing, I think it was an interview with a man named Phil Riken. Phil Riken had taken over as the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church here in Philadelphia. 10th Presbyterian Church is this legendary church with this worldwide reputation. If you've been in the city, you've heard the church before. They had a line of pastors that were legends. The man that he was replacing with this, was this man named James Montgomery Boyce. And if you've heard that name before in Philadelphia and world over, this man was a legendary preacher of God's word. And so they asked Phil Riken, Phil what was it like for you to step into that pulpit, into that man's shoes? I mean, how could you possibly imagine stepping into the place where James Montgomery Boyce preached? You know, this is what Phil Riken said. He said, Boyce had done such a good job of cultivating in his people a love for God's word that so long as I was preaching this, they didn't care who it came from. And can I tell you, I have always held for me and prayed for and desired that that would be one of our most pronounced hopes for our pulpit here at Seven Mile Road. That it does not matter what donkey is speaking to you as long as it is from this book. I want you to hear, if you were to ever try to compliment one of us going, you're preaching, oh, thank goodness. I want you to hear, we would never hear that as a compliment. That would be a dagger to us going, we're not doing well enough of cultivating a love for this book so that like the Bereans, you might examine what it has to say. Daily, eagerly seeing that these things are so. The truth of Jesus is contained in this book. So like the noble Bereans, Luke, bold, underline, pay attention, eagerly receive it. Examine it daily to make sure that these things are so. But second and lastly, while this book contains the truth of Jesus, this passage also shows us that the truth of Jesus can't be contained and turns this world upside down. Let me just say this and I'll be done. This book contains the truth of Jesus, but the truth of Jesus cannot be contained and turns this world upside down. This world upside down, that was the charge brought against Paul and Silas and the Christians at Thessalonica. Remember when the mob dragged them into the streets. When John was reading, you heard it. Listen again, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Would you hear that with me? This is the charge. They have turned the world upside down. Now listen, out of their mouths, they meant it as an insult. They meant it as these troublemakers these ruiners of the status quo, these disturbers of our way of life, they've come here and they meant it as an insult. And yet, in fact, we read it and go, what a compliment. In fact, we would long to say, what a challenge to us. Oh, that any would insult us in this way. 
that the followers of Jesus have turned our city, Philadelphia, upside down. And you think of that. This movement that turned the world upside down, this Jesus movement had no armies, no weapons, no money, no power, and yet like an unstoppable force, they were sweeping through the land and spreading and conquering the empire without ever raising a sword, without ever raising a fist, without having a vote, marginalized this obscure Jewish Jesus movement, took over the Roman Empire. In fact, here's the way I thought of it. Let me say it this way. I thought if I showed up in Thessalonica, follow this with me. If I showed up in Thessalonica and I preached, I thought about how I would preach. I would show up to Thessalonica and I would have preached the gospel. And my gospel preaching would have sounded like this. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He came and lived a perfect life, obeying everything God had to say. He died in your place and for your sins so that if you would believe in him, you can have the forgiveness of your sins. And whoever puts their faith in him when they die will not perish but have eternal life and you will live forever with God in heaven. Can I ask you, is there anything off about what I just said? Anything heretical in that? And tell me, is that not the gospel? And yet, I'm stunned to think that that proclamation can be believed, contained, kept quietly, safely within the confines of my heart. And my question would be, as I hear Thessalonica, how would that inner, private, personal, religious belief ever come up with an accusation, these people are trying to overthrow the government? How did that proclamation ever turn into, they're trying to overthrow Caesar? And I think it's this, that when Paul preached, he didn't preach less than what I just said. But the gospel is bigger than what I just said, because the good news that we preach isn't just a message of evacuation from this awful stadium. The message of Christianity isn't believe this and you too can float up into the clouds when you die. The message Paul preached was Jesus is the Messiah. That is what? The Christ of this world. That Yahweh's rule and reign has broken into, invaded and touched down on this planet. And now Jesus has put a flag and a stamp on this earth and declared over it, mine. And everything about this earth belongs to him. And the Christian proclamation, he is not just Lord of heaven, he is Lord of all. He's the Lord of this earth. And when they said Jesus is Lord, implication, Caesar's not. And therefore, it was heard not just as what we would call spiritual or inspirational or religious, it was heard as political. Because the Jesus movement was saying, this Jesus is not this invisible guy in the clouds we believe. He's the Lord of this planet. And his kingdom has broken into this world. And we, therefore, are ambassadors of that king, declaring to you the good news of his rule and reign, and offering to you terms of peace now, or the promise and threat of wrath later. So repent and believe and come under his kingdom. And join with us in being citizens of this earth who at the same time have a citizens above. And one day we pray that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is Lord of both and all. 
I guess what I'm simply saying to you is a Christianity that is reduced to a private, personal, religious belief with the great hope being evacuation is far too small. It doesn't turn the world upside down. My faith in Jesus, and I suspect some of our faith in Jesus, is like this helium balloon that's always trying to drift up into the clouds and live up there in this theoretical, ephemeral realm. And Axe is pulling the string of the balloon down and saying, yes, yes, he has ascended into the heavens, but he is Lord of this earth. And this faith in Jesus is far more earthy and gritty and has implications for this world because he rules and reigns here. And therefore, this faith of theirs was public and tangible and concrete in such a way that the people said, They've turned this world upside down. There was nothing like a secret Colts fan about their faith in Jesus Christ. There is so much more we could say about how this faith spread in the first three centuries. Let me just give you one, genuinely, whole books on how the faith spread across the world. Let me tell you one. Scholars tell us in 40 AD, 10 years after Jesus died, there's about 1,000 Christians By the end of the century, 40 A.D., 1,000. By the end of the century, 100 A.D., there's about 10,000. By 200 A.D., there's about 200,000. By 300 A.D., there's 5 to 6 million Christians, so much so that the Roman Empire is swallowed up by it. How does an obscure movement around a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth take over the world, win the field, so that the Caesar on the throne has to declare Jesus is Lord. How did that happen? So much that could be said. Let me just tell you one. I went to a conference last week in Chicago, heard a lecture on the state of North American Christianity. The speaker said simply one point I'd say to you. In the first three centuries, ordinary Christians talked about their faith. How it spread was not because you brought someone to the church to hear the great preacher preach, In fact, in the first three centuries, you couldn't bring a non-Christian to the church for fear that what if he goes and tells the authority? And so the way that it spread was 80 to 90% of it was just ordinary people talking about their faith. They peeked their heads up above the ground. They wore the jersey in the stadium. They made it known that they were with Jesus. It cost them greatly all the time. But they stuck their head out, they stopped hiding, and they went public with their faith. And this lecturer who spoke said, listen, if you think about it, if Jesus Christ really is the most important person in your life, the center of your being, the only way the people closest to you can't know about him, can't hear about him, is if you hide who you are. And ordinary Christians stop hiding. They stop hiding. Or he said it another way. He said, or the only other way they don't know is if you kick Jesus out to the suburbs of your life rather than letting him live downtown. And if Jesus is truly Lord, then he's the God of this book you hold in your lap, but the truth of that book cannot be contained, and it will turn the world upside down. So here's my plea for us. We worship this God in this place like they did the people of the book in that synagogue. But they, what they believed in those walls seeped out into the city. 
So let us pray that we would not come back here next Sunday without some point in this week going public with our faith. That the world around us might be turned upside down. Let's pray together. God, we pray that your spirit would produce in us the changes that we so desperately desire. We together confess that we have hidden our loyalty and allegiance to you. We have at best been a people of the word of God, but have often not taken the word of God into the world of God. And we pray that would change about us. We pray that our city would say of us and the many, many gospel churches in Philadelphia, these people have turned this city upside down. And we pray that the rule and reign of King Jesus, who is real, would be known in visible, concrete, loving, wise, beautiful ways. Even this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.